This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Steve Finley. Finn, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Booney. My pleasure. Always. How many hits do you think you took away from? Now, uh, let me tell the listeners out there. Let me preface the story a little bit. Every time it seemed like I'd come to town, you know, we'd, we'd run into each other during BP or whatever on the field. I said, listen, stay away. From, and it seemed like every series I'm looking at you and you're just giving me that look like, I don't know, Booney. It just don't hit it there and I won't catch it. Right. You were a great center. You were a great center fielder, but it just so happened that I'd hit balls right in a spot against you where you had a chance to make a great play. I mean, it seemed like every time I'm like the freaking Finley, he's always there. And it seemed like we we're when I'd always come to San Diego, how many, how many hits you take away from me? Did you notice that you took away more from me or was it just cause I was always talking about it? Just cause you were always talking about it. I was like, well, if he's going to talk about it, then I'm just not going to let him have any, if I can help. <laughs> Plus, you took away your fair share for me, so I was kind of like a tit-for-tat kind of guy. If a guy made a great play on me out in the field, I wasn't going to let him have anything, anything. Barry Larkin and I used to go back and forth all the time. He'd get so mad at me, and I'm like, well, look where you stand right up the middle and take away all my hits up the middle. I'm not giving you anything in that right center gap. So it's uh, I prided myself on my defense, and you know, I knew if I wasn't hitting – I better be able to catch the ball. So, uh, you know, my pitchers wanted to have me out there. My teammates wanted to have me out there, even if I couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with a baseball bat. Isn't it a cool thing? I love, I mean, we all love to hit, uh, you know, it's sexy. It's the cool thing. Of course we want to go deep. Uh, I mean, there's not too many things better than that, but for us that played a especially defensive position up the middle, you being a center fielder, I play, you know, I played second base, obviously you're right. It, because we're not always going to hit. We're always going to have those rough weeks. Shit. couple mid nineties. I had a couple rough years at the plate. I remember my hitting coach saying, Booney, don't lose that leather. And it kind of, it gives you a little bit of solace. You know, it's like, I'm not going to hit, especially as you get more experience in this game, we're not always going to hit. And it, and it's like, you know, I can put my glove on and I can, I can take something away from somebody else. I can turn a big double play. Maybe helps my team win that game so I can sleep tonight. And and uh, it really was. It was a big part of my life that I took a lot of pride in. And and obviously you did as well. Yeah, well, you know, I, I when I work with any minor leaguers, that's what I, one of the first things I tell them, 
I go, you know, hitting is great. Just like you said, it's great, but it's going to be, there's going to be an ebb and flow to your hitting. I said, but that glove, that leather on your hands, if that's suspect and you're hitting a suspect, you're going to be getting a lot of splinters in your rear end because you're going to be sitting right next to that manager over there trying to figure out how you're going to get in the game. And he's going to try to be trying to figure out how he's going to get you in the game because he doesn't trust either one right now. So, but if that leather's great, you get like to your point, you get to work your way through slumps, whether it be a week, a month, a year, whatever. That manager can't afford to take you out of the lineup because you mean so much on the other side of the other side of the field, which is the defensive side. Uh, and you get to work your way through it and, and eventually come out of it. Yeah, without a doubt. I've had some some great center fielders on on the program. I was fortunate enough to uh, to play with some great ones. You know, I played with Andrew for a year, Tory Hunter, uh, Griffey when I was a kid. I played with Mike Cameron in Seattle. What is the most important thing playing center field that the great ones do that you notice the most? Uh, you know, it's it's and you know this. It's preparation. Um, you know, you do all your drills, you do all your training in the off. I mean, it really, it starts, if you really want to back it up, it starts in the off season, it starts with your training, it starts with speed work, getting a jump. So you're quick off your feet. Um, and then once you get to the spring training, then it starts to be preparation. I mean, we play everybody so many times. So you start to get to learn tendencies of hitters where they like to hit the ball with a, when they're ahead in the count, when they're behind the count, when there's a guy in scoring position, game on the line, you start seeing that, but you also study that. We get all these reports about, you know, the spray charts where guys hit the ball. So there's a lot of studying that goes on both in video, your mind, and on paper. I know that I did, and I know a lot of the, the other really good center fielders did the same thing. You have to be prepared for that game. Then I'd go to the, then for me personally, I would go to the pitcher and the pitcher, the pitching coach that were pitching that night. And, you know, cause I can see the spray chart of how these guys hit him. Are you going to change anything off your game plan on these guys? You know, who's, who's hot, who's, who you're going to go after, who you're not. And if you change anything during the game, let me know in center field. So, you know, and, and, you know, most of the time the game plan worked out, but every now and then you'd have to make adjustments on that and then maybe take away a hit that would have fallen in that maybe changes the outcome of the game. So if you can do that 15 or 20 times a year, you just say that's a lot of games you can help win. So, you know, it's kind of a long winded answer, but I think there's, there's, there's a lot of preparation that people don't see uh, that goes into the defensive side of the game that can, can be easily overlooked. Or if you're just a little lazy, you forget to do it and you find yourself in a wrong spot or you don't know how to make the adjustment during the game. Uh, and, and, and as I said, adjustment during the game, I see a lot nowadays of guys just pulling the little thing out of their back pocket and looking, where am I supposed to play? And that's where they play. And they don't make as many adjustments on the fly. I think uh, the, the, as you, as you used to see in the game, I mean, guys were moving all over the place uh, as you're watching the hitters, how they approach a pitcher during that at bat, all of a sudden seeing they're late a little bit. Hey, let's slide over a little bit. I don't see that as much nowadays, uh, and and I'm not sure why. Well, I think yeah, our generation it, it was a feel thing. We knew we, we did we made the adjustments with our eyes, with experience. Obviously, that the more games we play against teams and hitters uh there are tendencies who's on the mound today is he hitting his spots is he not hitting his spots how much can i trust this fastball away it'll help me you know is it an off-speed pitch uh is it a heater all these things go into how we defend but we were brought up where our experience and our through trial and error that's how would we would defend people and you're right it puzzles me too in today's game because it is, there is so much out there and, and I'm not, uh, you know, this topic comes up all the time, obviously in today's game, I'm not bashing, uh, the cue cards, let's call them that they pull out of their back pocket, but it blows my mind. Could you imagine Finn playing center field and, and having a cue card? Oh, I got to go stand over here. But then I think about it. That's how these players are brought up today. They're brought up with, Hey, the data says this. So instead of, learning the way we learn through trial and error, it's no, I checked the cue card and that's just a different generation. One day we'll all look at this and say, you know, was this, was this a better way to do it? Or, or was the other way a better way to do it? Time will tell, but I think it's, it's just the culture and how these young players are brought up today. I a hundred percent agree. And I honestly, I don't have a problem with the cue card because it's just like looking at the books that we looked at with all the spray charts. 
It's a suggestion. It's a suggestion. Thank you. you That's that's it's a suggestion of where to play. Where I have more of a problem is, 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 you know, the sabermetrics guy don't want them to make adjustments a lot of time because they say this, this percentages are, they're going to hit the ball right there. And so they want them just to stay there more times than not. And, and I think you're taking away the eyes of the player to see the game in a different light and to your point, make adjustments on the fly. And, and I don't see that as much as I used to. And it, it, I think that's only going to hurt the game. I think the game uh, becomes less strategic in the fans' eyes. I used to go to games uh, after I was done playing, and people like to sit with me because they were like, oh, baseball's this and that. I'm like, okay, watch this guy. Watch this guy on every pitcher, how he's moving around. And now fast forward to the last few years, I'm not seeing that as much anymore. It's more like, hey, go stand over here. If you don't catch a moving, you know, when the batter changes, you're not going to see a whole lot of movement out there. And I think that it, it leads to a, a, a more boring game. Yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely different to say to say the least of what we were brought up doing. And yeah, I, I don't get it. But then again, it, they were brought up that way. And that's and yes. maybe that's why, you know, a few years ago, you still had kind of the last of the old guards that didn't come up with the with the cards and the data. Uh, it was it was they, they were they were the tail end of the guys we played with. So now this new generation, they've all been brought up since so the minor leagues. They probably started having these have the, have these cards in their back pocket. It's just the way they've it's it's all they ever knew. So it's not a it's not a knock on them. It's just the, the kind of the way it is. I think eventually as time moves on and and you get through this, I think people are going to realize, yeah, the data is very, very uh, advantageous to use, but you also got to use that, that instinct that that great athlete has that great center fielder, that great middle infielder has, you got to give him a little leeway on, okay, in this situation, I'm seeing the way the, the flow of the game's going. I know the pitch that's coming. I know the tendency. I know this hitter. I, I think you're going to start to see that shift back as time goes on. Well, I, and, and that's where I think you'll see your elite defenders stand out over everybody else. You know, that 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 curve could be blurred a little more if everybody was just looking at the cards and that's all they ever did. But I think you're right. The elite defenders, I think, will separate themselves even more uh, when they're using the eyes along with the cue cards and and I have no problem with the cue cards either. And the game is played uh, in each generation. I mean, we could complain about things from guys before us and then the guys after us complain about stuff that we did. Uh, it's, it, it goes throughout. So, you know, I don't, I don't want my words to be construed as complaining about the game nowadays. It's just more frustrating, uh, you know, and there, you can't reinvent the entire wheel in baseball. And I feel like that's kind of what's been tried to do a little bit here with the sabermetrics and the and the data that's put in the game is kind of the game's kind of driven by that data instead of the data telling you kind of what's happening and use that data to kind of help make yourself better going forward. It it just seems like the data is everything now and 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 the heart, the the style of the player, some of that's kind of taken off the table to, that to me kind of made the game interesting before. Yeah, and I'm with you, too. You know, I'm not from the school of, oh, it's my way and our way was the best. No, I think without a doubt, you can always learn from the generation uh, that came before you. You know, watching my father's era, watching my grandfather's era, I didn't get to watch it, but I heard a lot about it. I learned a lot from them. But I think us as as guys now kind of in the middle, you know, our 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 playing days are over watching this young generation. There's a lot they can learn from us. But I think flip it around too. we can learn a lot from them. So I think that's the way the game should ebb and flow. Take from the new guys. Uh, What what are you doing differently? Man, that's a good idea. I wish I would have had that that idea when I was playing at the same time. I I think I think you can learn from one another. A hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. You know, and and I think you'll not find any player from any generation that would would argue anything else other than all they like to see is great, exciting baseball, you know? And I think, you know, the only gripe, this is my only really real, real gripe about the game nowadays. It just seems like they've devalued putting balls in play and um, uh, using the term, like I was 
told not to use this term by an organization, situational hitting to any of the hitters. I'm like, but every time we go to the plate, it's situational hitting. And it really struck me as like, wow, okay. Uh, all they, they didn't want the guys to think about that. I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of baseball. Every time you go up there, there's either you got to move a guy over, you got to hit behind a runner, you're trying to get a guy in from third base. Whatever you're doing, it's always a situation. Um, and I think the game, it seems like you, know, you hear the, 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 the numbers, it's, it's either a walk, a strikeout, or a home run. Uh, you know, averages overall have gone down. I think part of that is because pitching, you know, you have relievers throwing 100 now and be starting in the fifth inning. Uh, you're facing maybe a different pitcher every at bat. Some of that can be attributed to just that alone. Uh, but I think don't think you see the adjustments, you know, the the, the launch angle. Everybody talking about the launch angle. Um, you know, I, I I think you've gotten away from from contact baseball that that kind of made for an exciting baseball game where you're moving runners, hitting runs, and guys on the bases more. You know, I thought about this a lot. Like, why? Okay, why is this shift? And why do people hit into the shift? I think just what you said, the the, the launch angles, uh, the way they train, the way they develop their swing nowadays. It's almost like how golfers work on their swing. It's almost robotic. So it becomes more predictable, if that makes sense. I mean, you go back to the great hitters of yesteryear, uh, you know, Rod, Rod Carew to go way back, but more recently, a Tony Gwynn. You're not going to be able to put a shift on Tony Gwynn. He's going to laugh at you, you know, (laughs) but, but I think that's how he came up in our generation. It was get in a good position to hit good, a good pitch out over the plate and knock the shit out of it. It wasn't, Oh, make sure we're on this play. And, and I laugh too, you know, a lot of the things, you know, I'm learning a lot about today's game. I've got a a son that's, that's playing in the minor leagues and, and it's, I'm, I'm always learning, but I laugh when you mentioned average is, is not really, uh, held it's such a high level as it used to be. And I laugh and I said, let me tell you this about somebody that hits 300 in the ninth inning with the game on the line. When you need a base hit, that guy that hits 220 with a, with a 340 on base percentage. Cause he walks a lot. First of all, late in the game, the closers, uh, the elite closers of the game, they don't walk you. So the, throw the walk out the door. Now, who do you want in the batter's box? The guy that hits 300, the guy that hits 220. The guy that hits 220 essentially has no chance against an elite closer for the most part, percentage wise. The guy that hits 300, I want him at the plate. So when they say, oh, 300 isn't really a measuring stick anymore. Well, I'll tell you what, maybe because it's not, it's even more of a measuring stick of greatness today than, it, than it's ever been. Uh, agreed. Agreed. It's so hard to hit nowadays, you know, and, and, when when I hear about people talk about launch angle, you know, what what is a launch angle? We don't a launch angle is literally your bat is quick enough to reach towards the front of the hitting zone when your bat naturally starts coming up because it has to. And you contact the ball there and you you hit it out. I mean, it goes up in the air, but it also goes up in the air when you're at extension more. So you're going to hit it further. You know, it just it's a simple product of of physics. I mean, if you draw a horizontal line from about the middle of your body out in front of your body straight towards the pitcher, you know, Vladimir Guerrero had one of the longest hitting. We call it the hitting zone. You know that term hitting zone. Vladimir Guerrero had one of the longest hitting zones you can imagine. I mean, it was probably like four or five feet out in front of him. He could contact the baseball because he kept his bat level in there. But what people understand is he got his bat from a hitting position where he was standing to the down, and I say down, down to the back of that hitting zone, which started about middle of his body, and he kept it level all the way out towards the pitcher, way out in front of him, so he was able to contact the changeup, the slider, the uh, anything off speed, and he was still hitting the fastball. He was ready on the fastball, but kept his hands in that hitting, kept his bat in that hitting zone because it was flat in the hitting zone. These guys that talk about launch angle now and they get these guys dropping their back shoulder, their bat enters the hitting zone and exit the hitting zone and maybe a foot. They have a foot, a foot of hitting zone. They have to hit it in and good luck in Major League Baseball. Good luck. You need to keep that bat in the hitting zone as long as possible in order to contact the baseball and have more chances. And it's just frustrating seeing some of these guys that talk about launch angle that have no idea what they're talking about. 
And it's two, and it's not, you know, launch angle isn't for everybody. You know, one guy to hit hit the ball in the air, that's fine because that ball goes over the fence. For the other guy, it's a sacrifice fly and a non-sacrifice fly situation. So to me, to, to one way and, and to – to really value the home run. I, I see a lot of players coming up, a lot of young players coming through the minor leagues where there's so much emphasis put on hitting a home run. Everybody's not built to hit home runs. You've played a long time. You saw a lot of players. You either have power or you don't. You can always expand and, and get the most out of what you've been God given, but you don't just turn a non-power guy into a home run hitter. It just doesn't happen. And I think today that the negative I have to say about that is there's so much emphasis being put on the home run that you've got guys that aren't home run hitters trying to hit home runs and that makes them bad hitters. And, and I always try to emphasize good at bats, good at bats, consistent, good at bats will give you as a hitter the best chance to hit the most home runs you're going to hit individually. But if you're thinking home run first, I got to hit home runs because that's what's important. I'll show you a bad hitter right there. Yeah, or max effort. They'll go this max effort. You know, one of the best hitting instructors I ever had was Merv Rutman uh, here in San Diego. And he was when Tony Gwynn was here. And he told me, Steve, you go up to the plate 600 times this year, and all you think about is putting a good swing on the baseball he goes, any other situation besides a guy at second base when you're trying to really pull a ball, I don't want you to think about anything except putting a good swing on the baseball. And let's just see where your numbers are at the end of the year. I hit 298, scored 100 runs for the first time, uh, hit doubles, hit 11 home runs that year, which is the most home runs I'd hit in my career at that point. And triples, I mean, my production went way up. And all I thought about was putting a good swing on the baseball. It wasn't about home runs. It was about contacting the baseball solidly. And and uh, to your point, if more hitters just thought about that, the game one, I think, would be more exciting and uh, you'd end up hitting more home runs. Yep. Without a doubt. One more one more center field question for you. You mentioned Barry Larkin. He was a uh, teammate of mine for for six years and uh, I had a great rapport with him. And, and the things we do in the middle infield are, are different than what you do. What I want you to tell tell the audience is, is what goes on in that outfield center fielder. You're the captain of that outfield as a second baseman. You know, I would be giving uh, signs to Barry Barry'd give signs of me. Who's covering the bag. If I had a first baseman that was interested, uh, I'd give him a little whistle right before the pitch was delivered, whether it was an off speed, whether it was a fastball. Uh, so we do little things like that. In the infield, take me through the outfield with your corner guys, just on, on a, on a random team. Uh, how do you guys communicate? Well, uh, first and foremost, I was a, I was the director out there. The guy, whoever was on the say a hitter, a new hitter came up that we didn't see before pinch hitting. I'll just give you that example. Um, and in between every single pitch, in case there was something from the bench that the manager saw that maybe I didn't see or our outfield guy, I looked at him and I told him, don't wave your arms. because I don't want everybody in the ballpark or the other team to know that I might be moving somewhere out there. Just he'd have it one hand on one side of the rail and another hand on the other. If he needed me to move, he'd just pick up that hand or I would, and I would just look at him. He knew I was looking at him. I'd put my glove up, nothing. Okay. But every hitter that came up, I would look at, we knew where we were playing. I would yell to my left fielder. Uh, and if I was going to move towards right field, I would hold up that hand. I would tell him I'm going that way, move my hand that way with that hand. And then I would hold up my other hand, my non-glove hand with how many steps I'm going, one step or two. And then I would tell the right fielder the same thing. You're going to go that way, the same amount, move in. And then we would start shuffling on every pitch. After every pitch, depending on the count, I'd say, hey, I'm moving back over, pull him with me, push him back over in the left field side. So we're kind of moving as a unit out there. We never wanted to create a big gap anywhere. And that was every pitch, every pitch. That's what we that's what we were doing out there. There was never a moment where we were just sitting there just waiting for the whole bat to go by. Uh, and if there was no movements, I would just look at the guys. They would look at me, and we'd just stay right there. But there was always that eye, eye communication um, and communication when balls went up in the air. I mean, sometimes you'd have to let this guy know that, hey, if a ball's in this little section right here, the sun's on me, I need you to catch it. So there's always something to do. Where's the wind blowing? Is the ball going to get knocked down? Is it going to take off? Uh, so many things that 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 I think I'm glad you asked that question because uh, a lot of people don't realize how much goes into it. They see it on the infield. They see you guys talking when there's somebody on base, like to your point, who's going to cover, who's not. 
Uh, they think the outfield is just kind of boring. I'm like, no, it's not boring at all. There's a lot of stuff to do out there between every single pitch. No, and I think it's interesting to me, you know, playing playing middle infield my whole life. Uh, the only my only interaction with you is to tell you how many outs there are, and once in a while avoid a collision on a on that in between ball. And, and I'm just waiting for your voice so I can get out of the way. But you're right; it's interesting for me to to hear that type of talk because. Really, as infielders, we're caught up in ourselves. We don't worry about you guys. You got your own problems out there in the outfield. We got to decide how we're going to defend. We got to turn a big double play. I got to make sure I cheat here, but I can still get to the bag. Is my first baseman okay? You mentioned it, and that's a real interesting thing, too, is the sun ball. At certain ballparks, certain time of the day, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of Johnny Olerud. If he's playing first base uh, and I'm at second, I'll say, Johnny, how is the sun for you? Booney, I can't see anything here so i know right then all right because johnny was a great uh, first baseman i could depend on him for anything defensive but all of a sudden some games he's like i really can't see i know right there okay i've got to kind of go above and beyond now to take a ball that johnny would normally take make sure i'm there in case he really can't see it when it goes up these are all the interesting the cool things that aren't talked about all the time that that i even as long as i played I like hearing it because it's different for me. It's an outfield outfield strategy. Yeah, it's the same. You know, it's the same thing, just a different way in the outfield. And and uh, you know, I'd have uh, when a right handed when a right handed batter was up, I would tell the right fielder, "You have the inside route. I have the behind you route because the ball is going to be angling back to him off the bat, typically. So it's going to get to him quicker coming down towards him." Same thing with a left-handed batter to the left fielder, always reminding them every time one came up, he had the inside route, I had the behind route. You know, and and it, it, those are the things that help you win ball games that people don't see, and things you have to do if you want to win extra ball games. I always say that you don't realize how many extra ball games you can win by just being in the right spot, communicating during a full 162 game schedule. And I'm sure you're the same thing on the infield. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Gold gloves, you won five of them. More gratifying, winning a gold glove or making an all-star team? I'll, let, I'll, I'll give you my answer. I want to listen to yours first. Uh, winning a gold glove, I mean, that's during the 162 games. I mean, uh, uh, going to the all-star game for me um, was, was, was doing uh, – it was, it was kind of a reward for having either a full good year last year or, you know, you did a pretty good job – this year, I, I I had three different times I was told by managers, hey, I wanted to take you, but I got to take one of my own guys. You know, so it became more of a – that was – the All-Star game was more of a political political event. Like, uh, you had to you had to know somebody to get in the All-Star game <laughs> and have a good year at the same time. So, for me, winning a gold glove was way better. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I uh, it was great making the All-Star teams that I got to make, but – 
winning that first gold glove for me. Cause it's like, man, you, it, it, it's, it's such an uphill battle, you know, especially when you're young coming into the game and it's like, you've got to beat that door in twice to get that first gold glove. And I remember the first time I won it, I was like, finally, I've been battling for this thing. And then I went to the American league and now I got to battle Robbie Alomar. Right. And, and <laughs> you know, and then I won my first gold glove and I beat Alomar out and it was, it was so satisfying because it's so tough to do. And, and, you know, the, you talk about the political side of making a, uh, an all-star game. There's a little bit of that, too, especially in our day, winning that first gold glove. Once you won that first gold glove, you were on the radar. Like, in the next yep. year, they're going to be looking out for you. But you've got to break down that door and, and make everybody know, hey, I'm here and I can play some defense. So I'm going to have to agree with you. It, for me, it was the gold glove. I loved them both. But winning that first gold glove, it was just like – Finally, all this work finally paid off, but it was pretty cool. And uh, it is, it is. It's a lot of work and it does. It is very gratifying when it pays off and it makes you work even harder to maintain it because now it's yours. Yep. Um, you went to two World Series, 1998 with the Padres. Uh, go to Yankee Stadium, they sweep you. I, I know that feeling because in 99, I was with the Braves. We got to the World Series, Yankees, they swept us. Um, Oh, one was a different story for you. 98, because it was a big deal. It was San Diego Padres. Um, how did you feel walking out after that four game set when you got swept? Because I was just, you know, I, I was getting ready for this show and I, and I thought, wow, Finn went through exactly what I went through the year before in San Diego that I witnessed in Atlanta. It was a great year. We won 104, 105 games, uh, breezed through the first couple rounds of the playoffs. All of a sudden it's Yankee Stadium. It's my first World Series. Bright lights. I'm excited. And we lose four straight made for a kind of a long off season. It was a great year. Uh, but man, to go in and get swept, that was tough to swallow. It's like, we were better than that. You went through the same thing a year earlier. I'm interested to see your reaction to that. And then obviously 2001, we're going to talk about uh, is the opposite side of the coin where, where uh, unbelievable series and, and you end up winning a world series. First, Give me, give me your thoughts on, on that 98 and that first run and that first world series for you. Uh, yeah, that I mean, we walked into the clubhouse that year in spring training and we looked around and we had just gotten Kevin Brown. We already had a really good team. Uh, the best trade that never was when they traded Bonnie and then it got rejected. So he got to stay with us. He had 50 home runs that year. Uh, we just looked around the clubhouse and, and from the bench to our bullpen, having Hoffy down there, uh, Brownie, Ashby, Hamilton, uh, Sterling Hitchcock. I mean, we had a really, really good team. And, and, and you know, you can have a great team and still not get to the World Series. Uh, you've seen that throughout the history of the game. But we really felt like we had the club with the chemistry. And when we got there, it was like – it felt like this big burden. The team was trying to get a brand-new stadium. The owners were like, we need to go to the World Series. If we're, and then they corrected, we don't need to. We have to go to the World Series if we're going to get this new stadium. So it felt like there was a burden on us, and we answered the call. And when we got to the World Series, it just felt like, as a player, my first one, like this massive relief, like the, all this stress, like, yeah, we're here. And, and we're winning the first game. Uh, Mark Langston strikes out Tino Martinez, except it's called a ball. And then one pitch later, it's a grand slam and everything changed. And before you know it, we're the four games and we're out. And yes, it was a very, it was satisfying that we got to the world series. We did what we accomplished in getting to the world series, but we did not win it. And nor did we win a game or did it even feel like we were close after that. Um, so yeah, it was a really tough pill to swallow to get back home and, and realize that you were, you, you battled all the way through a season, you made it there and then you were just like four and gone. And it, it was, it was a tough pill to swallow and, and, and really put a fire under me. I wanted to get back there. I wanted to get back there and I wanted to win it. Oh, one, you had that opportunity, same team, you, you meet up with the Yankees and, such an such an unbelievable year on so many fronts. Uh, obviously, nine eleven hit, um, and it, it, that was obviously the the country was going through something pretty big. As players, uh, we were all in the same boat. We all got stopped. Every you know, I remember that 
the decision process. What are we going to do as players having all those meetings that we're going to play on? You know, I think it'll be good for the country. I think that was the sentiment around baseball from us players. Um, I had Gonzo on the, on the program who got the big hit in game seven, but leading up to that, the Yankees are the, you know, they still are to this day, Finn. They're the, the evil empire. Everybody loves outside of New York. Everybody likes to cheer against the Yankees. I think 2001 Arizona Yankees world series for the first time outside of Arizona. I think the world was kind of like, Oh, this is the Yankees year and, and they need to win it for the good of the country from what's going on. Did you feel that at all? And it just take me through that old one run. It was unbelievable. And, and Gonzo gets the knockoff of all people. Mariano, the greatest uh, reliever in the history of the postseason. Everything just went perfect for you guys. You end up winning the World Series. I remember as a spectator because we got knocked out by the Yankees watching you guys because uh, everybody kind of that foregone conclusion. Oh, it's destiny. You know, it's the Yankee. Everything that happened in New York. Yeah, of course, the Yankees are going to win the World Series. I, as a spectator, was thinking that, too. Uh, take me through it as a as a diamondback well you know we we won the season that year by two games against another really really good club the san francisco giants um it was an amazing season i mean there was so much focus on that season again looked around our clubhouse and spring training on wow we have Schilling, we have johnson uh matt williams jay bell luis gonzalez mark grace our bench was insane uh, our bullpen with Byung Hun Kim was unbelievable. So when I, and I thought back to our 98 team, I go, this team might even be better than our 98 team, just more complete all the way through. And I was like, this is our year. We're going to do it this year. Everybody felt the same way. And, and it was a grind. That whole season was a grind all the way to the end, winning by winning on the last weekend of the year, I believe. And, uh, and it was a win or go home. It wasn't a win, go to wild card. It was win or go home in our division. And uh, and we ended up winning it. And uh, the playoffs were just great that year. I mean, we ran into to, to, who I can't remember, Cardinals. That went five games. And, and, and Matt Williams, who had struggled that year, gets a base hit. Tony Gwynn with two outs, gets a blooper over the infield to win that game. We get the Braves in six games. And then uh, here we are playing the Yankees again. And, you know, we get to start at home and we go out there and, and win the first game. I think uh, they scored a run in the first. And when Craig Council hit a home run to start off that series in the first inning, it was like, here we go. Uh, we won the first two games with him and shit with Johnson pitching. And then we get to the first game in, in New York and it was a good one. Clemens beat us. They won in the they scored a run in the eighth inning to beat us three, two. Um, and then. They chose, we chose to use Schilling on three days rest and, and we're winning two to nothing with two outs in the ninth inning and Tino Martinez at the plate. And I never will forget it. I'm just, all right, you know, Byung Hung Kim, keep it out away from him. And he let one slide across the plate and bam, I remember heading to the wall, trying to jump over the wall to try to catch it. And, you know, it's like, well, it's the moments that you see in the history of baseball. Like that was an iconic moment, crowd going crazy. Like, all right, we just got a tie ball game. We end up losing an extra. I think Jeter hit a home run that night to win it in extra innings. Same scenario the next night. We're winning 2 nothing in the ninth inning. Runner gets on, broaches at the plate. And like, all right, he's got this. He's filthy slider, right-handed, no chance. He hit the ball, and I just put him, putting my hands down on my knees and, and just listening to the crowd. I knew it had distance. I just couldn't tell if it was foul or fair. And I hear the crowd going crazy. I started laughing. I was like, this is insane, you know, and, and, and as a player, you're not thinking about what's going around the world. I mean, yes, it was huge with the nine 11, everything was, was, was just surreal. And there was a lot of energy for New York in that series from all across the country and rightfully so, but we were the diamondbacks and we wanted to win this world series horribly. I mean, it was, here we go. Now all of a sudden we came in two Oh, now we're down three, two. And I remember going back in that clubhouse after the game and to a man, everybody's like, let's just get home. They got their ghosts here. We got our ghost in Arizona. I remember that was just like our chant, like let's just get out of here. And, and once we got back home, we had Randy Johnson on the mound. He did his job. And then here comes game seven. I mean, it's all or nothing. And uh, Schilling, Schilling pitching 
pitching on three days rest again, he was unbelievable. I mean, I remember the split finger that that um, uh, Soriano hit out of the ballpark. The catcher was going down to block. It was so low. And I yelled no until it hit the hit the stands. <laughs> uh, it was just, it was just insane. And then soon, sure enough, we look over there. There goes Mar- Mariano Rivera in the eighth inning getting loose. And uh, when the Schilling had to leave the game, they took him out of the game in that inning. I remember uh, 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 Danny Bautista and Luis Gonzalez coming over to center field. And to a man, they were like, we're getting his ass this time. Screw him. We didn't use better words than that, but I won't use them here on your podcast. We were like, screw him. We're kicking his ass this time. When we got back to the dugout at the bottom of the, at the bottom of the eighth inning, every single person was like, we're getting him this time. We're getting him. I don't know how, but we're getting him. Everybody. There was not one person that was down because they scored the go, a go ahead run in the eighth inning. And, uh, and by golly, when Gracie let off the ninth inning with the hit, it just rolled from there. I mean, there was never a doubt in our minds that we were going to find a way to win that game. And, you know, one of the biggest at-bats of that game was, you know, not only Grace getting a hit, but it was Tony Womack. And we kept sitting on the bench hoping that he would throw a cutter into him because that man could hit a ball that was going to hit him in the middle of the chest and keep it fair down the right field line. And that sure enough would eventually happen. And uh, one of the biggest hits right there to set Gonzo up for what happened uh, with his hit and uh, the rest is history. I mean, it was like the weight of the world lifted off your shoulders. It was pretty cool because I think that that particular year, you know, a lot of times when as players we don't move on or we don't go to the playoffs or we get we get eliminated from the playoffs. Usually you go home and you, you know, you really don't want to see the other guys that are doing well. You know, you want to go into your offseason and, and hang with <laughs> you. <Yep. laughs> but that particular year, you know, I, I remember really watching and, and watching every game. And, uh, you know, from President Bush at the time, throwing out the first pitch, how how cool that was. You know, it was just kind of a coming together of, of a country. It, w- it was cool and it, it kept you fixated. And then obviously the heroic way you guys won watching Schilling and Randy both. It seemed like they're both back and forth going on three days rest. Seems like. Uh, yesteryear how the big boys would do it you know uh in the old days of baseball where no we get to the we get to the world series it's all about we don't even consider four days rest we go with our big haunches every three to every uh on three days rest and uh no it was cool how was how was the city of phoenix it's first world series uh how was the parade Oh, it was amazing. I mean, yeah. uh, there was buzz. I mean, there was as many people outside the stadium that night. They set up big screen televisions as there were inside the stadium. Uh, it was so loud. It was a sea of people everywhere after the game. Everyone was happy. I mean, obviously, uh, it was. Uh, it was just. It was a great scene. I mean, you can't. You can't really um, uh, express how much it meant to us players just seeing the fans behind us. And it was that way for the rest of the off season there. I mean, for the next year, uh, it was purple everywhere. I, I, I went up the next morning cause I live right by Camelback mountain there. And for a lot of people who don't know Camelback, Camelback mountain, it's a mountain that kind of, has got a big hump on it. You know, it's what I'm talking about, right? Booney. Yeah. Yeah. I hiked to the top of Camelback mountain. I live really close to that. I was, I didn't even think I went to bed. I was just like so much energy and I took a championship flag with me. And with one of my buddies, I planted it right at the top of the mountain. The, the morning, it was like six o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I had a few friends tell me like they went up there. I didn't tell them I did that. I said, oh, there was a championship flag up there on the top of the mountain in the morning. So, yeah, that was me. They were like, what? Very <laughs> like, cool. Yeah, I, I couldn't move. I had to get up. I mean, I, I had to actually look at the paper to realize and believe that we won the World Series because it didn't feel real. That's how surreal it was. It was, uh, it was a pretty amazing moment. Something interesting about Steve Finley, I found out. You, ha- you hold the distinction. Uh, you played for all five teams in the NL West. So I, w- I want to go through a little rapid fire. And, and I don't, I don't, I, I got to set up here as likes and dislikes. I don't know if that's an accurate term. Um, pros and cons. I'll start with uh, Colorado. You played for the Rockies. What were the uh, you- pros and cons of playing in Colorado? Pros, um, the ball flew really well. Uh, great hitting background. Cons, horrible to play defense. Uh, you felt like you, I was a ball re- – I, 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 con- I coined myself as a ball retriever in the outfield. I really wasn't an outfield. I was just a ball retriever because it was just hard because you 
you play end up playing deeper sometimes, and it was just it just couldn't catch the, couldn't get the balls, and balls were in the air you thought you were going to catch when out of the ballpark. Balls you have, thought you didn't have a shot to catch, all of a sudden landing at your feet if you weren't careful. So, uh, really difficult play to play defense. San Francisco Giants, great history there, great fans. It just it, being in the clubhouse whenever I played there. I mean, Willie Mays was there every day. I got to pick his brain. Uh, Barry Bonds was there. I got to pick his brain and hitting. Uh, it was just it was just an amazing place to play. Something that was kind of I think understated. You didn't realize it until you're actually a player there how cool that city was and how cool the fans were. Arizona, there, there might not be any cons. You hit 30 homers three times uh, your time in Arizona. You won a World Series, but if you had to, give me the pros and cons of Arizona. Yeah, let me, let me go back real quick. The con, everybody's talking about the cons of, 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 of San Francisco. Now, I get two different cons of San Francisco. Uh, one, the first park, and I know you played in that one too. Candlestick? Uh, Candlestick. You know the scary thing is everybody <laughs> hates going to Candlestick. I hit well there. <laughs> oh, I, I hit well. I, I hated going there, but I'm like, you know what? Something's good going to happen for me because it always does, and I can't stand stepping in that box. It feels like you got no chance. All right. Anyway, I cut you off. Go so, ahead. To, so, so, so it, it was. It was another pro. I loved playing defense in the new park. Loved it. It was great. I hated hitting in it. I could not hit in that park to save my life. Well, it's a nightmare for a left-handed hitter. Oh, it was awful. Candlestick Park, uh, to your point, I loved hitting there. I I could not get hits there. But defense in the outfield, you would have lanes. Like, move over 10 feet, the ball took off. Move over 10 more feet, the ball ball dropped out of the air. Move over 10 feet, it took off. And the hot dog wrapper tornadoes, uh, it was just – and then when you had to go to the bathroom, you you had to run all the way across the field because you had to get to the clubhouse. There was a lot of cons there. Let's – (laughs) <laughs> very cold when you, you know what's amazing uh defensively in my career uh there's not too many times where i ever worried about defense that's where i was always stable like you know we talked about it in the opening it's like when i wasn't hitting man i had that glove i'm gonna go take some stuff away from you there's very few times in my career where i've ever felt any fear on defense i'm telling you candlestick parks can put some fear in you because when that wind's whipping all the, oh. especially in the infield, all the dirt, <laughs> all the dirt gets whipped off. So now it's like you're fielding on concrete and it's windy. It's a nightmare. I, I flat out few, few games there. I was scared. Like, yeah. nervous, I'm going to screw, <laughs> I'm going to screw this up somehow. Yeah. I would always get my worst strawberries there. It seemed like on my rear end or my knees. Oh, it's just to your point. It was always so hard. Where were we? Were we at Arizona? No, we're doing now. We're now we're now in Arizona. The pros in Arizona, the hitting background, you could not get a pitcher's arm outside of that back hitting background. It was an amazing place to hit. Amazing place to hit. Um, clubhouse, great. All the staff, everybody, great. The front, the ownership were there, Jerry Colangelo. Everybody was fantastic. They wanted to win a world championship from the top all the way down the bottom. Uh, great hitting background, great place to play defense. Uh, really, I don't have any cons there. There was never a con in my book there. We, it was just a great – in my six years I spent there, it was a great front office, great uh, staff that we had, anything, everything we needed, uh, and, and the players we had were all first class. So it was, it was just – there was no cons in my book. Padres, pros and cons. Um, pros, uh, same thing. We had a great, great ownership group that wanted to win. Um, in my four years there, we had great teammates. I mean, such a good, great selection of teammates, the clubhouse staff, everybody was fantastic. A lot of those guys are even still there to this day, uh, that we interact with. And, 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 you know, we went to a world series with that team cons. Um, well, I played it. There's two different parks to, to, I didn't, I didn't have the new park as a home park. Uh, but the old park, I loved hitting there. I loved the outfield wall there. Oh, my God. It was like a uh, trampoline. You could run full speed into it. And it would just like bow back and then toss you back out. Uh, so that was always a big thing for me because I could be more aggressive in the outfield going after balls. Um, cons, uh, it could be a tough place to hit sometimes. Uh, the field would get very hard because they played football on it as well. So, you know, you got to September, even like August. Uh, and big games that mattered, they'd throw green stuff all over the field just to make it look good, but it was awful underneath. You didn't know where a ball was going to bounce. It was like concrete. Um, uh, and you, if you could ever be scared as an outfitter, that was a time to be scared. Um, the new ballpark, beautiful, one of the best in, best in the country, terrible to hit in, 
Uh, defense, I loved it there. I always equated it to like uh, if you're ever playing Frisbee and you throw that Frisbee into the wind and you can just kind of run out there underneath it and it just glides into your hands. That was the baseball in my book there. It was like throw, throwing a Frisbee into I, the wind. I remember. <laughs> I remember when that uh, – when that new park came in, we played one of the first games there, exhibition right before opening day. And I remember taking BP there. Yeah, okay. You know, it went fine to left field, right center back then. I mean, they've since moved in the fences, but I remember that first day going, I, I was looking at the other team and Klesko at the time was on that team. And, uh, <laughs> and Nevin who, you know, hit the ball, had power the other way. I said, good luck hitting homers in this ballpark the other way as a righty. Uh, they've since moved it in, but I know what you're saying. The lights were beautiful. It's a cool stadium from a fan standpoint, the new one. But yeah, that layer that sets in at night makes it makes that air heavy and still to this day hitting. Okay, last but not least, the most iconic of of the of the mall is uh, L.A. Dodgers. Briefly, you played for them. Uh, yeah, I was two months there, um, and it was it was incredible. I mean, that was I'd always wanted to play for a big market club uh, like like L.A. or the Yankees or Boston. So having that opportunity to go there. Um, I loved it. I loved the the atmosphere. Um, I love the ballparks. One of my favorite ballparks to play in anyway. Always hit well there. Um, always loved playing defense there. So the, really there's there was the only con that I ever really had there was traffic. And that had nothing to do with the ballpark. Uh the 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 baseball park to me was beautiful. And just walking down the halls and you see the history there, everything that's happened there. Uh, and it's the same ballpark. It's really a beautiful place. Uh, I said maybe the only con was when they changed the color of the seats behind home plate. I think they changed it to some weird yellow or something, and you could not see the ball in the outfield. So you wanted a lot of a lot of bodies in the stands. Uh, but other than that, it was just uh, it was just a great place to play. The fans were fantastic that year. Nobody left in the seventh inning, which was kind of weird because you used to leave in that crowd. You know, leaving in the seventh inning, but man, they stayed. They were raucous. Uh, they hadn't won a World Series since '88, or nor really been to the playoffs since '96, and so it was. I think the crowds really started getting behind the team, and and really ever since then, the Dodgers have put out some amazing clubs, and the fans have really embraced uh, getting there on time and staying late. Steve Finley, great career, man. 19 years, over 300 homers, over 2,500 hits, uh, five gold gloves, two all-star, two all-star teams. I appreciate you coming on the Boot Podcast. It's a lot of fun. 